Good morning. We're going to be reading Psalm 74, which can be found on page 486 of your Pew Bible, if you would like to follow along. A Maskeel of Asaph. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might, and you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours is also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth, and you have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me, let me begin with a question for you this morning, uh, because our text begins with, with a question. Uh, how do you feel about the state of the church today? You have warm and fuzzies? You feel encouraged? How do, how do you feel about the state of the church today? Are you hopeful, enthused, cheerful, confident? Uh, are you feeling perhaps demoralized, disheartened? Are you discouraged about the state of the church today? By the state of the church, I mean sort of broadly speaking. Uh, how, how encouraged are you by the state of the affairs within the church of God? The sense I get as I speak to, to many of you and even keep an eye on uh, the internet and conversations happening outside these walls, the sense I get is that there's a lot of discouragement. Uh, people are feeling weary disheartened uh, when they hear reports of, the, you know, the next celebrity pastor renouncing Christ publicly. Uh, they're discouraged. You're discouraged. You're disheartened. 
You feel downtrodden and downcast. How do you, how do you feel about the church, the state of the church today? Uh, it seems that uh, there's this sentiment and sense that there's ruins on the horizon, that it's only a matter of time, perhaps, that uh, we won't be able to even freely gather like this. Um, some of you are, have expressed, I've heard you express concerns that, you know, will there ever come a time when we can't gather here at Trinity in Abington, uh, when our doors are shut down for whatever reason, moral corruption internally, geopolitical challenges externally, whatever it might be, the sense that I get is that there's a heightened awareness, a heightened sense of discouragement about the state of the church today. It feels fragile. Uh, like, like corrosive rust, there's concerns that uh, the church will rot from the inside out as leaders are exposed as hypocritical or as congregates can't stop quarreling. Uh, doesn't it feel like the church is in ruin when that, that pastor that you love renounces Christ? Doesn't it feel like the church is in ruin when the congregation splits over uh, not being able to be united on choosing what color the carpet should be? It's discouraging. The state of the, of the affairs of the church can be discouraging today. Or how about externally? Uh, some of you might feel like there's a, sort of an unbridled freight train bounding for churches in America. Many feel the state of the church seems inescapably threatened by secular ideologies or even governmental oppression, either locally or even foreignly. Uh, have you heard the, the, these sentiments? Uh, perhaps you've expressed them. Perhaps you feel it. Um, I'm not condemning these thoughts. I'm sort of trying to evoke and provoke and bring them into the light this morning. I know many of you have shared with me that you're concerned about the state of the church today. Well, Psalm 74 is a song of a church that is experiencing ruin, ruins, <clears throat> a total church in ruins. It's one church's response to ruin. Generally speaking, there's three types of psalms. There's psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and reorientation. Or you might have heard it as uh, songs of praise, lament, and acknowledgement. Psalm 74, our text this morning, is a psalm of disorientation or lament. So as we study and look at 70, Psalm 74 this morning, I'd like to answer this question. This question. How does a church in ruin reorient? How does a church in ruin reorient? Uh, specifically, here, here's, here's what I think the, the three steps of orientation are in this text. Here's how the, the church in ruin in Psalm 74 does it. Uh, first, to reorient, you recognize the ruins. Second, you remember your ruler. And third, you request God's remembrance. Recognize the ruins, remember your ruler, and request God's remembrance. Yes, I know I'm probably overdoing it with the R words this morning. Thanks for bearing with me. Uh, those three features of reorientation will serve sort of as our, as our outline as I lead us through the text. And please, please hear me, think of this. Uh, as we study this text, think of, the, think of this morning as a fire drill. You know, what, what happens in case the doors of Trinity Community Church are closed because of external pressures, pressures against our will. 
here's what we do. This is sort of like a, a fire drill text. You know, like, you know, like firefighters go into your elementary school and teach, teach the little ones, you know, hey, if you ever catch on fire, you need to stop, drop, and roll. This, this is that kind of exercise this morning. Because I don't think uh, Trinity, I'm not suggesting that Trinity is in utter ruins and despair today. But I know if you, if you look on the horizon and look at the church more broadly, you might feel that sentiment, that, that there's great threat to the, the quality and the richness of church today. So I'm not trying to suggest uh, we're in the ruins, but I want to suggest that at any time we can be ruined, just like this church in Psalm 74 was experiencing ruins. And so this is a bit of a fire drill for us this morning. Instead of stop, drop, and roll, it's recognize, remember, and request. So in the next 25 minutes, I'd like for us to consider how a church in ruin would reorient by way of fire drill. So here we go. How does a church in in ruin reorient first? You recognize the ruins. Recognize the ruins. For the original singers of this song here in Psalm 74, uh, the cause of this disorientation uh, is poetically being expressed in verses 1 through 11. It poetically retells Israel's response to a hostile takeover and their temple being destroyed. Uh, the first thing that the church does is to recognize the ruin. And in fact, they invite God to recognize it too. Uh, in verse 3, they cry out to God, God, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. Look, the enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Verse 3. Uh, verses 1 through 11 are likely describing the events of the Babylonian invasion in 586 BC when, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sacked the holy city of Jerusalem, God's people, where God's temple was built. You can read more about that in 2 Kings chapter 25, if you'd like to jot that down and reread the story yourself later. Uh, Babylon's war strategy was to demolish and displace. They would come and ruin and destroy all the sacred artifacts, or they would displace the people. And in this case, they looted God's temple, demolished it, took the leaders of Israel into exile, and left the poor behind. Psalm 74 appears to be sort of a a poetic expression from the vantage point of those left behind, watching the smoldering ruins left by Babylon. Uh, In verse 4, Babylon is described as a thundering lion roaring in the midst of the sanctuary. Uh, One preacher, Christopher Ash, describes uh, these enemies of God as, quote, acting like drunken lumberjacks in a forest, smashing the beautiful carvings that evoked the Garden of Eden and symbolized the only hope of reentry into Eden, back into God's presence. Just imagine drunken lumberjacks in Trinity Sanctuary, cutting through the pews, destroying the pulpit and the, the, the stage up here. Just imagine the scene, the roar of their voices, mocking, destroying, displacing God's people. This is what this church of ruins is experiencing. Thundering lions, drunken lumberjacks, and absolute arsonists. Look, they, they turn the sanctuary into an utter inferno. Verses 7 and 8. These men were arsonists. So how does a church like this in ruin, how do they reorient to God? Well, first, they recognize the ruins. They acknowledge it. They don't act like life is just cheery, cheery and up and up. Uh, 
For them, the, this, this, the ruins were an actual literal temple. For us today, the ruins might be moral or geopolitical. Let's address the ruins, address the threats of the church. Whatever it might be, take, take stock of the carnage that you see. Don't sweep it under the rug. Acknowledge it like this early church does. Specifically, acknowledge the ruins both theologically and collectively. In other words, we need to recognize the ruins uh, before God and with, with others. That's what Psalm 74 does. This church in ruins directs their cry theologically to God. Verse 1, they go to God first. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pastor? This church in ruins directs the, the recognition of the ruins to their God. Think, think to yourself, how, how do you typically respond to your concerns of the church? Do you go to God first? Who do you cry out to when you're concerned about the, cha- the state of the church, whether internally here at Trinity or even more broadly, the state of the church in America or the state of the church across the globe? Who do you turn to when you have concerns? It's tempting to turn to the neighbor. Uh, I've done this. Maybe you've done this. You've gone, you've expressed your concerns to uh, your roommate or your spouse or the person in the pew sitting next to you or your closest friend here at Trinity uh, or maybe a friend on social media rather than first taking your, con- your concerns to God. You complain to someone else. I- I'm tempted to do this. I-, I-, I trend this way. I think we all default to go to others rather than God first. Um, the problem is with this is that when you do this, it can lead to further disorientation. There becomes a domino effect of complaint that ultimately just discourages other Christians. And, and, until, and until someone interrupts the flow of their concerns and directs those theologically uh, and Godwardly, you just, you're just perpetuating the domino effect of discouragement. But a church in ruins that wants to reorient goes and addresses their concerns to God. So rather, that's what we should do. We should recognize that our ruins by crying out theologically to God because he's the ultimate solution to the ruins. But not only just theologically, but also we should do this corporately. We should do it together. Again, look at, look at verse one. We're not supposed to do this alone. Oh God, why do you cast us, us, off forever? This is a corporate song of lament. Why does your anger smoke against us, the sheep of your pastor? Psalm 74 is a corporate song of lament. It's not individual. This church, corporately, together, are recognizing the ruins. They're not trying to bear the burden and the pain and the discouragement all alone. Because if you try to go at it alone, you're going to end up more discouraged. So do it collectively. When the church is in ruins, recognize the ruins, both theologically and corporately. So recognize the ruins theologically before God, corporately, together with others, because no individual can bear the weight alone. What might this look like? Well, this might look like having a corporate prayer meeting uh, concerning the matters of the church at large. Um, Psalm 74 gives us good grounds to want and need weekly prayer. I'm grateful that Trinity corporately prays together before our weekly gatherings here on Sunday. Uh, 
Justin just led us in a pastoral prayer, which is us going before the throne of God together corporately. Psalm 74 sort of is, is almost like a proof text supporting this idea that we, we really ought to be praying together because none of us can do this alone. God made us to do this corporately. Because for a church in ruins to reorient, you first need to recognize the ruins before God and do it with others. That's my first point. Second, how does a church in ruin reorient? You need to remember your ruler. Remember your ruler. Uh, Verses 12 through 17 is an emphatic refrain of remembrance. It's emphatic because look, look at how the verses 3 through 17 start. It's a personal direct address to God. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You, God, gave him as food. Verse 15, you split open the springs. You dried up the ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours is the night. You have established the heavenly lights. You have fixed all the boundaries on earth. This is the second thing you do if you're a church in ruins, is you reorient reorient to your ruler. Uh, This little church uh, declares seven excellencies of God's quality, a sort of complete package of who God is, declaring him as the complete, sovereign, in-control one. Uh, In fact, the original Hebrew uh, actually really says, you, you alone. It's it's very emphatic. Uh, I think we lose some of the sense of that. It's still reliable, Uh, But it's slightly veiled uh, if you're looking at the ESV translation. But really, it's you, God. You alone. You. You're the one who divided the seas. You. You. It's very emphatic. So it's an emphatic refrain of remembrance. Particularly the remembering God's rule as ancient, near, and well-ordered. Ancient, near, and well-ordered. A church in ruin needs to remember her ruler. First, they recognize that God's rule is described as ancient. Verse 12, they say, God is the king from of old, which is good news because for them, in the backdrop of their present ruin, it's comforting to know that God has a record of rule and power. Uh, This is them saying, God, you have been around the block. You've seen a few things. You're the great ruler. You've been the ruler from the beginning of time. You were the ruler before rulers were even a thing. You're the first ruler. This is good news to a church in ruin. Second, they're celebrating, they're remembering that God's rule is near, near. Look at the second half of verse 12. They say that God works salvation in the midst of the earth, which is good news. Because when the ruin is local, when it's on earth, it's good news that you, to know that you're in your ruler's jurisdiction. My, uh, my family and I used to live in Jenkintown. Uh, if, you knew, if you know Jenkintown, uh, it, it borders Sheltonham Township. And we lived on a busy road right along this, this border. And uh, twice I called 911, emergency services, uh, because there was car accidents just out front of our, of our house. And, uh, and both times, the operator had delay because they were trying to figure out, wait, okay, so are you in, are you in Jenkintown Township? Are you, are you in Sheltonham Township? I'm like, I don't know. I'm on the border. 
one car is on the other side, uh, one car is on my side. How do I don't know. And the, the, the dispatcher is trying to figure out who to dispatch. Do I dispatch uh, Sheltonham Township Police Department? Do I dispatch Jenkintown Police? Whose who's jurisdiction is it? It helps to know whose jurisdiction your ruler is ruling in. When your church is in ruins, remember that you're in God's jurisdiction. There's no hesitation for dispatch. He works salvation on, on earth, which means that any ruin that the church faces today, it's in his jurisdiction. This truth that God is near, his rule is near, corrects the common heresy known as deism. Deism is sort of the, the view that, that God is a distant God, that he he exists, but he's, he's separate from his creation. You might have heard it expressed or described as God as a divine clockmaker, who in creation, he wound up the clock, uh, set it out, and now he's just kind of letting it tick by. But he's a bit, he's hands off. This is the heresy of, of deism. Islam uh, very much functions this way, that God is a distant God. He's not near. And one of the temptations that a church w- will face if they're facing ruins is they're going, to, they're going to be tempted to believe that God is not near, that he is distant. And they're going to be tempted that, uh, that you're not, the ruin is not in his jur- jurisdiction. But verse 12 rem- reminds us and is a, a case study in remembering God's rule in the midst of the earth. Because God's rule is near. You're in his jurisdiction. So when your church is in ruin... First, remember God's rule is ancient. Second, that it's, it's near. But also third, remember that his rule is well-ordered. Well-ordered. Here's some of the verbs in verses 13 through 17. It describes God as the divider, the breaker, the splitter, the one who establishes and fixes. This is ordering language. You might be wondering, what in the world is going on with the, the sea monsters there in verse 13? And 14, uh, or the, the head-crushing stuff that's going on there. Uh, well, verses 13 and 14, as well as 15 through 17, appear to highlight God's power over this, the disorders of creation. These, these verses are reminiscent of creation language that you see in Genesis 1, 1 and 3, 1 through 3, or uh, reminiscent of God's deliverance of, of Egypt. From, of his people from Egypt, when God split the Red Sea, divided the sea, and God's people passed through, and he destroyed Pharaoh and his armies, the, you know, the serpent, the, the sea monsters, they, they were crushed under the waters. Uh, I think this is sort of a, a poetic expression of those things, as well as uh, like when you read in Joshua 3, when, when God's people uh, crossed the Jordan, and God dried up the dry land so that they can, God's people can cross into the promised land. And, and here's the point I think that they're making in these, t- these verses. I think they're saying that the songwriter's saying uh, that God, his rule is well-ordered and it's displayed in the venue, the arena of creation. It's possible that the writer is borrowing from some ancient Near Eastern mythology at the time where they would personify uh, the water as sea monsters and there's this cosmic conflict. Um, And what they're poetically saying is that God is the king over all those storylines, even the made-up ones, even myths. 
So in other words, verses 13 through 17, this church in ruin is claiming uh, God is not a God of chaos. His rule is not chaotic. Or as one author put it, he says, when God created the world, he made a world in which evil was his servant and could never rival him actually as God. And that the order in creation assures us and reassures us that God who put, the God who put over in, into, the God who made creation also sustains the creation and he will reestablish the order in his creation. Uh, so in, in, in other words, simply put, the God of creation rules in his creation and he's never left, left his post ever since he created it. So church, remember your ruler. This is the second part of our fire drill this morning. So how does the church in ruin reorient? First, by recognizing the ruins theologically before God, corporately with others. And then second, by remembering your ruler whose rule is ancient and it's near and it's well-ordered. Third and finally, how does the church reorient and ruin? You request God's remembrance. Verse 18. They cry out, Remember this, O Lord. Remember how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people revile your name. Do not deliver the soul to your dove, to the wild beast. Don't forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God. Defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Don't forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Psalm 74 ends with seven requests for God to remember, to respond. It begins with remembrance. Verse 18, remember this. Uh, verse 23, 22 and 23 ends with remembrance. Both stated in the po- positive. Verse 22, second half. Remember how the fools, how, how the foolish scoff at you all day. Uh, and also in the negative, basically remember, do not forget or remember the clamor of your foes. Again, seven suggests a, a thoroughness of their plea, of their request, the number of completion. Like the seven declarations that uh, we read of God's rule in verses 12 through 7, this sort of matches a response to seven attributes of God's rule. It's a response to seven attributes of, of, of request, seven elements of request. They say, remember, do not deliver, do not forget, have regard, let not the downtrodden turn back, arise, and do not forget. It's a mix of requests, both positive and in the negative. So what does this say about the, the state of a, a church in ruin? It says that they are needy, completely, utterly, sevenfold needy, and they need God to remember them. So bring your requests to him. A church in ruin longs for a God who will remember them in their affliction. Why ask for remembrance? Well, because you know what it's like. When, when you're facing hardships, you just feel like just utterly forgotten. And particularly, you acutely feel it towards God. God, have you left me hanging here? Have you forsaken me? 
That's the original cry in verse 1 of Psalm 74. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? And they even bring up this, this need for remembrance in verse 2. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased from of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. So Psalm 74 begins with a request of remembrance and ends with an emphatic request of remembrance. Remember, God, remember this desperate church in ruin is praying. So you need to recognize the ruins. You need to remember your ruler, and you need to emphatically request your ruler to remembrance. This is how a church in ruins reorients. This is sort of a a dress rehearsal for us this morning, Trinity, Uh, because we might face a similar fate someday. I'm not trying to be a false prophet. I'm not trying to catastrophize, uh, but I am trying to echo and illuminate some of the sentiments that you are feeling. And some of you are wondering, I've heard you ask, and I've asked this myself, what happens if Trinity doors are shut? What do we do? How do we reorient? What do we do next? Here's our fire drill, church. We recognize the ruins, theologically, collectively. We remember our ruler. This is what we do in the fire drill. And finally, we request his remembrance of us. God, look at the ruins. Look at us. Remember us. Do something. Help. We will, of course, do this fire drill imperfectly. We can preach the same text next week, and we'll forget what to do in ruins We'll scatter and scurry about. We'll forget God in the equation. We'll try to resort to uh, some man-made solution, some sort of self-help. We'll turn to a a, a book other than God's word. We'll scramble. We'll scurry. This This is what destruction does. It's sort of the chaos of war. It's hard. So we have helps for us this morning, but church, of course, we're gonna, we're probably gonna do this imperfectly. Many churches have done this imperfectly. But there is one singer of this psalm who knows what it's like to recognize the ruins, who is intimately aware of what it's like to remember God's rule and request his remembrance. He does it perfectly. He does it better than all of us. And his name is Jesus. Jesus sings and has sung this psalm. He's the supreme singer of Psalm 74. I mean, think about it. Jesus... Uh, like Israel, has witnessed what it's like for God's dwelling place on earth to be utterly corrupted in ruins. Luke 19 picks up this narrative. It reads, uh, When Jesus drew near to the city, that's Jerusalem, how did he respond? Jesus wept over the ruins. Verse Luke, 20, uh, Luke 19, 42, Jesus says to his disciples, would that you, even you, had you known on this day the things that would it take to make peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you up on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you do not know the time of your visitation. And when Jesus entered the temple, he began to drive out those who said, those who were selling things, saying to them, it is written, my house shall, not be, a, shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it, made it a den of robbers. Jesus wept over the corruption of the temple in his time. 
And, and, and the, he wept of the persecution that would, be, would come onto his church because we bear his name. So like the original singers of Psalm 74, and like us, Jesus recognizes the ruins of the church. He's not oblivious. He's sung this type of song. He's witnessed this himself. Luke 19 attests to this. He grieved it. Jesus recognized it. He wept. It moved him. He was disturbed by it. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He, directed, he addressed it head on, directly. But unlike us, Jesus has become the ruined temple himself so that the church of God would be restored. John 3.18. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this, this temple, and you'll raise it up in just three days? But they didn't realize that Jesus was talking about his own body as a temple. You see, Jesus doesn't just weep over the corruption of the temple of his time, but he became the ruined temple for us because he is the very dwelling place of God what the temple has always symbolized, God's presence with his people. So because Jesus is the supreme temple, he is the dwelling place of God, one author comments that, that the person of Jesus fulfills all that the temple foreshadowed. He is the place of sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice. So he is the place where sinners meet with God, he himself. So he's not like us in that regard. Jesus doesn't simply just recognize the ruins. He becomes the ruins himself. Like us, Jesus remembers God's rule. John 19, when Jesus was interacting with Pilate on trial, uh, Pilate thinks that his rule is supreme on earth, but Jesus reminds him, saying, uh, saying to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you. In other words, he's, Jesus is remembering the rule of his father. Even on the eve of Jesus' ruin, he remembers that his father has supreme rule over evil. But unlike us, Jesus is the supreme ancient ruler. He is the ruler for us to remember. He is the one who has come near, hence his name, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the well-ordered ruler, the ruler that we sing to. Colossians 1.15 declares this truth. Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, whether on heaven or on earth, invisible visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. A.K.A. Church, you're always in Jesus' jurisdiction. There's no hesitation in his dispatch. You need to know this in our fire drill this morning. He's Emmanuel. He's the God with us, even in the ruins. Finally, Jesus is like us uh, as he was one who also requested God to remember him. I mean, think about what he did on the eve of his crucifixion. He cried out to God in the garden saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup of wrath from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But unlike Jesus, our, but unlike us, Jesus' request goes unanswered by the Father. 
His request of deliverance from the ruin, absorbing the wrath of God for the, for the sinners of the world, for the sin of the world, his requests from this ruin went unanswered. So church, your requests of deliverance would be answered. A church in ruin might feel forsaken, but Jesus was supremely forsaken. He was forsaken on the cross. His request of remembrance was unanswered. So that your request for remembrance in utter despair, in utter despair, in the worst case scenario that you can imagine, can be remembered. Trinity, Jesus has remembered you. He has remembered us. We need to remember this in our fire drill. So now it's our turn to remember him because he has remembered us on the cross. And Jesus, our ruler, has given his church, us, a reorientation helper. He's given us his spirit. Jesus said about the spirit, he will teach us, he'll teach you all the things and bring to you remembrance, all that I, Jesus, have said to you. So with the spirit's help, let's reorient in ruins. Let's be prepared in this fire drill for any kind of ruin that might come to pass. How? We do this by recognizing the ruins, by remembering our ruler, and requesting God's remembrance. This is our fire drill. And as we wait for Jesus' return for one final time to defend his final cause, his ultimate cause, let's be reminding each other as we wait that Jesus was the one who was ruined for us, that none of our ruins will ever compare to the ruin that he experienced on the cross, and, and remind each other so that we can rem- forever remain in him. Church, Jesus has come near. He was ruined on your behalf. He was the ruler destroyed on your behalf. He was, he was the one who requested God's remembrance of him and was answered with utter silence. He called for help. He was in the jurisdiction, but he, all he got was a dial tone so that when you call for help, your request would be answered. This is the good news of Jesus in Psalm 74. Let me pray for us. Or actually, Will will be praying for us in prayer of application. Come with me before the throne of grace to remember what God has done for us. Father in heaven, holy and hallowed be your name. I pray, Father, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on this earth as it is done in heaven. Lord, as I was listening to this sermon this morning, I was reignited in my heart what you have shared with me on many occasions, that your church needs prayer and your church needs discipleship. Lord, I'm thinking of the church as a whole. And Lord, I thank you that here we are beginning to pray. And I pray that we would increase our times of corporate prayer to meet with you, Lord, as a family, as brothers, as sisters, glorifying the God of heaven. And I pray, Lord, that you would raise up here in this place men and women who can disciple each other and walk with you. Lord, you discipled 12, and they changed the world. 
Would you disciple us, Lord? Would you lead us by your spirit to be men and women who call each other to walk closely with you, to bring forth your word together and call each other's hearts to walk with you? But Lord, the thing that I remember the most this morning is that this is your church. The church throughout the world, the church here at Trinity belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to anybody else. Lord Jesus, would you rule and reign in this place, I pray in Jesus' name.